Well, we uh, continue our series in the book of Haggai, and uh, last week we focused on the state of the church, the church at large, which of course affects us here, but certainly considered many broader issues, and we concluded that only through an honest assessment and repentance can we move forward as a movement and as the evangelical church. So today, we continue looking at Haggai, and we see God's people responding to that call to repent and call to get back to work on the temple, and they respond in obedience. You may remember that the issue was that they had returned to Jerusalem after a long exile in Babylon and started working on the temple, but then they stopped in the face of the opposition from the local tribes and having been themselves consumed with their own personal problems, their houses, and so the work on the temple stalled. And so Haggai comes and, and on behalf of the Lord says, you need to return to the work. And so in this passage that Naomi read for us, they get back to work. And so this is a message for the church today to encourage us to get back to work as well. Having repented, let's work. Let's do what we're supposed to do. And so we see in this passage a picture of a church responding to God's call, of a church in the midst of a renewal. God is doing something in this community. And if we are to experience a renewal in the evangelical movement, we also need to see the same things happening in our time. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to show you five aspects of renewal or if you want to phrase it this way, five marks of revival. Now, I've defined all of them in relation to God because any genuine renewal, any genuine revival involves a renewed relationship with God, a renewed understanding of who God is. So here are the five marks or five aspects of revival. So number one, God's people need to rediscover their God as the God who speaks, the God who speaks. True revival is led by the voice of God. Now look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And then verse 13, then Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with the Lord's message. Why are these people resuming the work of rebuilding the temple? Simply because the Lord said so. And they obeyed. They heard the voice of the Lord and they obeyed it. And so there is no future for the evangelical movement unless we obey the voice of the Lord, unless we hear his word and we obey it. There are many Christians today that are simply ignorant of what God says. They don't obey because they don't know what God says. And yet there are many others who blatantly disregard what God says. Whether they know or not, we see ungodly practices accepted in the church and unchristlike character 
celebrated by church leaders. A church that wants to experience renewal must once again place itself under the authority of the Bible. We must hear and obey the voice of God. The Puritans described the Bible as the light to our paths, the key of the kingdom of heaven, our comfort in affliction, our shield and sword against Satan, the school of all wisdom, the glass wherein we behold God's face, the testimony of his favor, and the only food and nourishment of our souls. This is the high view of the Bible. And unless we restore that, and not just theologically, but practically in our own lives, in our own churches, I don't see any hope for our movement. I think we'll just continue to stray. One of the signs of revival, as we see here in our passage, is a fresh desire to know and obey God's Word. Jonathan Edwards records that during the first great revival in his church in 1734, he says, every hearer was eager to drink in the words coming from the mouth of the preacher. There was eagerness to drink in what the preacher was saying. Now, it's interesting that some of the sermons that were received with such great response and as such a stirring in New England of that time had already been preached by him before. Now, you know the the great sermon, Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God, that is credited with sparking that revival. He had preached that sermon before. And people didn't respond. People didn't hear God's voice. But then... As the Spirit moved, people started eagerly awaiting God's words on a Sunday morning. The Lord's Day, Edward says, became a delight. People gathered in homes to discuss Scripture. Some showed up at the pastor's house and kept him up late, late into the night, asking biblical questions. This was happening in 1734. People heard God's voice, and they obeyed. God's Word. So here's our first point of application. Do you listen to God's voice? Do you know His Word? Do you obey His voice? Do you love His Word? There's no renewal unless you know and obey His words contained in this book. So that's the first rediscovery that happens during a renewal, the rediscovery of the God who speaks. Secondly, we rediscover the God who is God, the God who is God. True revival is marked by the right perception of God, which is what the Bible calls the fear of God, the fear of God. Now, we read in verse 12 that the people feared the Lord, They heard the word, they responded in obedience, but in the midst of that was a certain attitude, a certain disposition. They feared the Lord. Now, of course, the fear of God is one of the least understood biblical concepts today. What does it mean to fear the Lord? I'm going to try to help us wrestle with that, but 
I hope that it starts a journey for you. I hope that you, you start, start learning more and more about fear of God. That is a central concept in Scripture. Now, the simplest definition of what it is to fear the Lord is to see God as He really is. To fear the Lord means to see God as He really is. For an unbeliever, a person who is not reconciled to God, not in a relationship with God, seeing God as He is is a terrifying experience. If you're not a believer, you don't know Him, and you actually see Him as He is in His glory, in His holiness, in His justice, in His majesty, you will be scared, you'll be terrified. So this kind of unbelieving fear will push you away from God. You don't want to be near Him because He's scary to you. But if you are a believer, one who has a relationship with God, seeing God as He is will draw you closer to Him, albeit in awe and reverence and wonder and humility. You will lay low before Him, but you will be drawn to Him. Here's a good question to ask ourselves. Does my fear of the Lord move me closer to Him or turn me away from Him? Theologians call the right kind of fear of God filial fear. Filial meaning the kind of attitude that comes from children to their parents, exhibited by a child to their father. Michael Reeves wrote a great book on the fear of God, and he describes the right fear of the Lord as a love that trembles, a love that trembles before the overwhelming beauty, holiness, and glory of our Father. This is what Reeves say, says. True fear of God is true love for God defined. It is the right response to God's full-orbed revelation of Himself in all His grace and glory. I'll read it again. True fear of God is true love for God defined. It is the right response to God's full-orbed revelation of Himself in all His grace and glory. For a Christian, the fear of God is the right response to who God actually is. And this response is a love that trembles. Listen to Reeves. The living God is infinitely perfect and quintessentially, overwhelmingly beautiful in every way. His righteousness, His graciousness, His majesty, His mercy, His all. And so we do not love Him aright if our love is not a trembling, overwhelmed, and fearful love. In a sense, then, the trembling fear of God is a way of speaking about the intensity of the saint's love for and enjoyment of all that God is. One of the signs of revival is a renewed high vision of who God is. There's a new level of seriousness before God that happens. There's a sense of being overwhelmed by Him. Eugene Peterson says that the fear of the Lord guards us against blasphemous chumminess with the Almighty. The Bible does not talk about the fear of the Lord to scare us, but to bring us to awesome attention before the overwhelming grandeur of God, to shut up our whining and chattering and stop our running and fidgeting so that we can really see Him as He is 
and listen to him as he speaks his merciful, life-changing words of forgiveness. I wonder if your love for God is a love that trembles. The right fear of the Lord lies somewhere between the terror of God's judgment and the flippancy of approaching God as an equal. The right fear of God is knowing that our Father loves us, but that He chose to love us in spite of our sins. He's not like us, and His glory is overwhelming for us, and yet He is with us, drawing us ever closer into His love. That's the right fear of God. One way to determine if you have the right fear of God is to examine your other fears. Biblically, the right kind of fear of God delivers us from all other fears because it places them into their proper context. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 10, beginning in verse 28. Jesus says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now, this is a great passage that that shows us and summarizes to us what this right fear of God is. Because notice how Jesus says, don't fear those who can only hurt you a little bit. Fear the one who can completely destroy you. Right? So there's context. Lesser fear, greater fear. But notice that Jesus doesn't leave you with this terror of God who will just throw you into hell if you displease him. He then affirms that God loves you and you are more precious to him than a sparrow and that he knows exactly what's going on in your life and nothing will happen to you unless he decides that. He calls him their father and reminds them that although he can destroy them body and soul, that he can cast them into hell, he instead loves them and protects them. This is what it means to fear the Lord, is to love Him with this kind of trembling, overwhelming love. And this kind of love casts out other fears. Now, we actually see the people in Jerusalem being freed here in our passage from fear of the local opposition and beginning to rebuild the temple, something that stopped them before when they encountered the opposition from the local tribes. They stopped, they pulled back. But now they resume the building Now, what changed? Well, their hearts changed. They began to fear the Lord more than they feared their opposition. The lesser fear of people has been replaced by the greater fear of the Lord. In the last two years, there have been many signs that the evangelical church's fear of the Lord has diminished, even as other fears began to rise. Many Christians seem to live in fear of the pandemic. They tremble at every new statistic and embrace unhealthy practices in fear of losing their health. What is the antidote to this fear? The fear of the Lord. The love that trembles before the Father who has numbered all the hairs on our heads. The fear of what is happening in our culture has gripped many Christians' hearts. 
They tremble at every news story and stay awake listening to the angry rants of media personalities. What is the antidote to that fear? The fear of the Lord. The love that trembles before the Father who has the same power over politicians as he does over sparrows. Of course, the pandemic is not to be ignored, and the cultural changes are worthy of our careful attention and engagement. But these are lesser fears. They should not dominate any Christian's heart. And they should be defined by the greater fear before our Father. Only if we tremble before the Lord. And to the degree that we do, will we be able to have the right response to these other things. So we rediscover the God who speaks. We rediscover the God who is God, who is God to be feared as he is. And then we rediscover, thirdly, the God who is there. The God who is there. True revival is fueled by the presence of God. It's fueled by the presence of God. Look at verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. The message that the Lord gives to the people as they're ready to get back to work is, I am with you. I am here with you. I'm present with you. The Lord's message was that he is working with them. He is participating in the same work with them. He is not leaving them to themselves. And in verse 14, we read that the Lord stirred up the spirits of the leaders and the people to obey his word. The Lord is not just commanding them to do something. He is there actually doing it with them and through them and stirring up their spirits to obey his word. In his 1989 book, In the Name of Jesus, Henry Nouwen exhorted Christian leaders to become mystics. By that he meant people who dwelled in the presence of God and whose identity was deeply rooted in God's grace to them, what he called God's first love, the love that he gives us first before we can respond to him. Now in presented contemplative prayer as a safeguard from giving into the temptation to be relevant, to be pulled from one urgent issue to another and losing our way. I'd like to renew that call to you this morning. The call for our church, for our leaders, for our believers here to become mystics. Now, please understand my definition of mysticism. I'm talking about experiencing God's presence. I'm talking about experiential religion. Maybe I should call it biblical mysticism, good mysticism. It's not some vague spiritual phenomena but a real connection with the God as he is described in the Bible. This kind of mysticism is sensing God's presence. It's talking with him. It's marveling at who he is in a direct kind of experience. One of the signs of revival is the longing for God's presence. Wanting to be with him. When a revival broke out on the campuses of Moody Bible Institute and Wheaton College several years ago, 
Of course, after I graduated from Moody, it happened. It was marked by the student-led prayer meetings that often lasted through the night because no one wanted to leave God's presence. Kids would confess their sins through the night because they didn't want to leave. They wanted to linger. They wanted to hear from God. They wanted to speak to Him. Brothers and sisters, please hear me when I ask you to consider this kind of mysticism. We need Christians who exhibit the glow of God's presence on their faces. Christians who believe that God is there with them, not only because He has promised to be with them, but also because they experience His presence, where there is a reality of God's presence, an experience of God's presence, a reflection of His glory on our hearts. So that was the third mark. Fourthly, God's people need to rediscover their God as the God who works. The God who works. True revival relies on the work of God. Now, where do we see God working here in our passage? Look at the miraculous transformation of the leaders. Haggai, Zerubbabel, Joshua become highly effective leaders. They're leading God's people in response to God's voice in rebuilding of the temple. But why didn't they lead them before? They were still in those same positions. Haggai was still a prophet. Zerubbabel was still a governor. Joshua was still a high priest. And yet, not until this renewal happens do they actually lead their people in the way that they're supposed to? Because God had to change them before He brought renewal. God actually had to work in those hearts, and we are told in the hearts of all these other people whose spirits were stirred up, they were awakened by God. Let me tell you another revival story. David Morgan was one of the key leaders in the Welsh revival of 1859. Now, before the revival happened, he was an ordinary preacher who led an ordinary church. But one Tuesday night, and it did happen on a Tuesday, he went to bed like a lamb and awoke as a lion. This is how it was described. This is how he described it, how people around him described it. The Lord changed him and brought the kind of preaching through him through which thousands came to Christ. It is said that after that night when he woke up as a lion, he could recall so many Bible passages and, and religious concepts that he seemingly had no grasp of before. No formal education, by the way. And yet, after the Lord changed him, he became a powerful preacher. And every time he preached, tens and sometimes hundreds of people would be saved. And they would come talk to him afterwards, as it was the habit of, 
of Welsh Methodists, you would come talk to the pastor and kind of process your conversion with him after the service. So he would talk to tens and sometimes hundreds of people a night. And it was said that he could recall every name within those two years of the revival, every name of the person that was converted under his ministry. How does that happen? The Lord worked through him. After almost two years of this kind of preaching and this kind of revival work, he went to bed as a lion and woke up as a lamb. And he no longer could do things that, that, that he did during the revival. The memory was gone. The kind of effective ministry that brought hundreds of maybe thousands of people into the kingdom was no longer there. He was still a faithful pastor, finished his ministry well in a good church. But that kind of powerful anointing was gone. Why? I think to make clear that the revival in Wales was the work of the Lord. God did it. He did it through David Morgan, but God did it. Now we see the same, same thing in our text, that the Lord stirred up the spirit of the leaders, stirred up the spirit of the remnant of the people, and the Lord was working through them, unmistakably, supernaturally working through these believers. And people who used to be passive and self-absorbed and concerned about their paneled houses got to work on the temple together. It's a miraculous thing. And we see that in, 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 in every account of a revival, we see these tremendous changes happening in people. Yes, people get converted, which is a huge change, right? But Christians get awakened. And all of a sudden, they possess gifts that they didn't have before, they acquire skills they didn't have before, and they are effective ministers. Notice also as a sign of God's work the unity of the people, including their leaders, as they work together. Unity, too, is a great mark of revival. Amen. And true unity is always a work of God. Amen. The reason is, is because sin separates us not just us from God, but also us from each other. And when we are spiritually awakened, we deal with our sin. We become intolerant of our sins, and we repent from them, which is why during the Moody and Wheaton revivals, the kids confess their sins. Students confess their sins. They dealt with their sins. And this kind of confession and repentance often leads to reconciliation with others an experience of a fresh unity in the church. Here's another revival story. This is about a great revival in western Canada. began in 1971 at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. One of the key events that sparked that revival was the reconciliation of Sam and his brother Arnold. Now, both of them were deacons in the church, but they were in a 13-year-long feud with each other. In fact, they had not spoken to each other for two years at that point. Both serving in the same church, leaders in the same church. And as the Spirit was moving among the congregation, first through Sam's wife, Irma, who was convicted of herself, herself of the bitterness she experienced towards Arnold, 
And then that spirit began to move on the pastor. And then the church realized that they have this, this unresolved conflict between two of their leaders. And so they put them in the basement. They brought the two deacons in the basement of the church. And they reconciled. And they hugged each other and they prayed and they asked for forgiveness. And that was an early sign of the kind of unity that that whole area of Western Canada was going to experience through the revival. In fact, it is reported that when people gathered for prayer meetings, evangelistic sermons, people of all denominations gathered together. And there seemingly was no difference between a Baptist and a Methodist, an Alliance person, or a Pentecostal Christian, because everybody was united in this work of God, because people repented of their sins. They dealt with their bitterness. They dealt with their resentment, and God did a marvelous work in Western Canada. It is God who works in us. And if there is any hope for the evangelical church today, we must become much more aware of what God can do with his people. Is God working in your heart today? This very morning, is, is God speaking to you and convicting you of your sin? Is there a sin you need to deal with today? Is there bitterness and resentment you need to confess? Is there someone you need to forgive? Is there someone you need to reconcile with? Renewals do not happen unless God's people decide to deal with their sins. And finally, the fifth mark of this revival and of any revival is rediscovery of God as the God who saves. The God who saves. The God who speaks. The God who is God, the God who is there, the God who works, and the God who saves. True revival focuses on the salvation of God, on the gospel of God. Now, you might ask me, well, where do you get it in this passage? Well, what were they doing in obedience to the Lord? What is the work? Verse 14, they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. They worked on the temple. The center of their activity, the locus of their work was the temple. The temple lay in ruins and the temple had to be rebuilt. Now we talked about the temple last week in some detail, noticing that the temple was where God worked. This is where God was. This is where his glory was. This is where he talked to his people and people talked to him. This is where sacrifices were brought to ensure God's people's access to their God. The temple was the center of God's saving, God's redemptive activity. It was the greatest symbol of salvation. Now, there is no temple in Jerusalem anymore. Should the application from Haggai to us be to move to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple? Certainly not. Because a new temple has already been built. Jesus Christ said of himself in John 2, 19, destroy this temple 
and in three days I will raise it up again. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, a new meeting place between God and people has been provided. The final sacrifice of God's own Son has been offered. The eternal priest and mediator has been installed. The new covenant has been ratified. While many wonderful things may happen during a revival, the main focus is always on the salvation offered to us in Christ. And the fruitfulness of a revival is not measured by social change and is not measured by buildings. It is measured by the number of conversions. Without the gospel of Jesus Christ, who died and rose again, none of the other marks of revival make sense. The God who speaks proclaims the message of salvation by grace. Believe his word and follow Jesus. That's the word of God. That's his message. The God who is who he is in all his glory welcomes us into his presence. But as we go into his presence, we no longer fear God's judgment because Jesus was punished in our place. And we can now come boldly to the throne with a love that trembles at the grace of our Lord. The God who is there is available to us because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Because of Jesus, God is always with us, and He is always for us. The God who works transforms us into sons and daughters through His Spirit, the helper and comforter sent by Jesus to us. And the Spirit will keep working until He completes His work in us when Jesus returns. Because Jesus is the God who saves. So I'll leave you with this and then we'll go to the table. Are you saved? Are you saved? Have you met Jesus? Are you His follower? Have you experienced His amazing grace to you, knowing that He died for you, He rose for you, and He will be coming for you? Are you saved?